All right. Today on the podcast, we have Nate Fisher, who is the CEO at New Founding, which is their tagline is build the America you want to live in. It's a venture firm for American vitality. So thanks, Nate, for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. And more importantly, you're a father of four. So that's why I wanted you to have this on this podcast. <laughs> Soon to be father of five. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, so there's there's so many things that I want to kind of co- maybe hit on today. So I was I was kind of struggling with where to start. Um, maybe you know, obviously we'll weave in um, what New Founding is doing and what you're doing. But I'm curious, um, just as the political climate and kind of what's going on today, what do you feel like history class has gotten wrong? History class has gotten wrong. That is a that is a good question. I. Uh, it's interesting. I was homeschooled and probably had a fairly unconventional upbringing, even in the early days of, uh, of my understanding of history. So uh, I, I, I'll, I'll go with where the conventional narrative has gone wrong, uh, even if that's never, never really been the, the view I was taught. I think there's a assumption. Fundamentally, there's an assumption of liberalism and of this sort of arc arc of history that aligns with a a liberal view of the world really a post-world war ii uh set of norms and sort of assumes the the sort of steady ascendance of a set of post-world war ii norms that is uh it's not just wrong it's uh dangerously wrong and i'll actually use uh, I, I don't talk a ton i don't even have a particularly strong opinion about uh sort of details of middle east policy for instance but i I I posted something after uh, last week after the attack on Israel, and in many ways I think Israel has been constrained based on a set of liberal assumptions. Uh, it's been constrained from doing what probably it's needed to do to protect itself, uh, and and those assumptions relate to. Uh, I guess, normalizing a degree of multiculturalism. And yet you have, you clearly have cultures over there that are not compatible with Mm -hmm. a, uh, certainly a sort of Western civilized uh, approach to life. And I think that those constraints don't just, it's sort of easy to acknowledge them when you see something like this in Israel. But in many ways, I think they shape our entire view of the world and our, the framework Mm -hmm. within which we consider a whole range of, of policies, uh, a whole range of, of uh, approaches to uh, the world and to life. And they, uh, they, they sort of wash, they reject consideration of things that through most of history would have been recognized as key distinctions and key uh, problems that need to be confronted. So what do you mean? So when you talk about multiculturalism in that context, but if you if you if you kind of zoom out with multiculturalism with history class, it seems to me there's a lot of discussion about that, and that that is a, a predetermined kind of assumption of it as a ultimate good in some ways, and that's really seems to me is, it played a big role in kind of where we find ourselves. Could you expand on that a little bit? You know, as as you mentioned it here with the, the Israel conflict. Yep. Well, so I think the assumption is that we're moving toward an era where we're moving toward an era where the traditional cultural divisions, let's say religion and others, are 
uh, religion, ethnicity, all of that are diminishing in importance. And I, uh, I don't think that's true. I think that Torta, I mean, I actually like to going back to sort of the venture side, right? Facebook's mission until relatively recently was to make the world a more open and connected place. Mm-hmm. And there's this belief and it's been, it's like, it's a continuation of the progressive belief that technology can help facilitate this move toward an open world, toward a world that sort of moved past these, these old divisions. And uh, I think that's clearly, I, very few people would, would say that that has been the trajectory of the last decade. Uh, that I think was a, that was a assumption built into uh, much of our worldview. And it's one that I think has proven, uh, proven false. And so what you actually have is you actually have people with sharply different, uh, perhaps irreconcilable uh, values and norms. And uh, certainly they've been brought into proximity with each other, forced into proximity with each other. Things like the internet, uh, the digital world tends to uh, break further, facilitate uh, interaction, and yet their beliefs about the world remain uh, irreconcilably different. And I think that the sooner we recognize that, and, and I think it goes similarly to a non, and this actually ties into things like parenthood, right? Mm-hmm. It, it goes with a non-judgmentalism about culture. Uh, if you're non-judgmental about culture, that must be built on the assumption that uh, cultures are, are equally good, uh, presumably compatible with each other, uh, and and something that we can kind of move past and focus on other things. Uh, and I think that that entire framework of the world, which shapes everything from parenting to foreign policy and border policy is uh, catastrophically naive and uh, increasingly uh, apparent, uh, apparently so. So it, so it's almost the assumption that you, 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 you can't label any other culture as inferior in any sort of way it's just a, a matter of misunderstanding. And so the assumption is that there's like, if we can connect people that there's, that we'll all kind of just get along. Is that kind of what you're describing? And then that hasn't proven true. Yeah. Misunderstanding plus, I think an element of education. Look, if we just educate people, if we just propagandize people with these sort of values, values of tolerance, uh, if we educate people, they will, uh, they will adopt, they'll progressively adopt the, the dogmas of tolerance, the dogmas of liberalism, and they'll, they'll all get along with each other. Exactly. That if you educate kids and they, and they get actually applies, it applies to a similar view that if you educate kids, they will choose goodness. Yeah. And that's, that's very false. <laughs> it's very false. You need to, you, you need to morally raise kids and you need to discipline kids and you need to likewise, I, uh, morally judge, uh, morally judge, uh, practices and cultures and recognize that some of them are, uh, compatible with a, uh, vision we have, and some of them are not, and some of them would need sharp changes to, uh, to be able to, uh, live in peace with, uh, with our vision of life. Yeah. That, that's interesting. You say you're homeschooled. I, I must've missed that, but I was homeschooled for a short time and then we homeschool our kids. Um, and I've always, 
always fascinated by the kind of socialization, you know, argument against homeschooling. And I've always responded, well, you're just saying you want the chance to indoctrinate my children and you think I'm not doing a good enough job indoctrinating them with your dogma. <laughs> and, and I think that that's really key because there's a, there's like an understanding that it, um, it, it kind of goes to that education piece. Like you're, you're not doing a good job as a, as a homeschool parent, you know, opening their eyes to all the things that are out there. And if you would, then it would ultimately be, you know, a, a good essentially for the child. Yep. Well, and I think the socialization one is it, it's, it's mixed in. They use socialization and socialization is something that sort of naturally resonates, but you push on it. And what they really mean is, they actually do want to that they do want to shape kids with a broad uh, broad doctrine. And you actually think of the early purpose of public schools. And my understanding is the very early public schools were designed to essentially catechize people with a standard civic education, a standard that they were really designed to facilitate an assimilation of immigrants and and such. And uh, it's understandable. It's I think it's something that. It's something that could be, could have virtues if what you're doing is, is, uh, is socializing them into shared and virtuous cultural norms. I, the problem is that we, to some extent, I homeschool as well right now. And to a large extent, we do so because we don't have uh, shared and virtuous cultural norms that are, uh, are being taught to them. So how did how did a nation that was founded on immigrants? So the the, the case is, is often said, well, we're a nation of immigrants, so we should be open to all of these different cultures, and and that kind of starts to make the case for multiculturalism, in in some ways that they that it's presented. So for if we're a nation of immigrants, yet now we're saying, you know, I guess what has changed when you talk about new founding, what you're really leveraging, at least from from my vantage point, is. You're, you're kind of saying we need to return to that, that founding that, you know, we're founding it again almost, but we're leveraging that like spirit of American vitality. What changed from then to now in terms of how we embraced the, the immigrants and like you were, you were saying like catechize them, but we, something fundamentally changed. Was it an, an absence of a shared goal or a shared, you know, direction? Um, do you get, do you get what I'm asking? Yeah, no, I think that's that's a very fundamental question. What, to some extent, what does assimilation mean too? And I'll actually, going back to the sort of what the history books get wrong thing, my impression is the sort of nation of immigrants framing itself was actually a uh, something that really changed post-World War II. And that that's not how Americans thought of themselves. Uh, we didn't think of ourselves predominantly as a nation of immigrants uh, for much of our history. It was It would have been a nation with a distinct set of values, it was still, I think it was still somewhat propositional. It was very Anglo in, it was very Anglo-Saxon identity, uh, even though it was a, a somewhat broader, uh, broader group, but that was a, it, it was a particular branch of that, that I think defined a national spirit and a national vision. And there was an expectation that a lot of people would, would uh, embrace that as they, as they got here. And I think, yes, if we're going to uh, nation of immigrants is sort of a descriptive thing. And you turn that into an ideal and you're actually in many ways sort of eliminating any sort of, uh, other than the sort of narrowest propositions, any sort of uh, description of what, what people should become. 
Uh, my view with new founding is, is we do need a new positive vision. And the right, the, the right framed as conservative was mostly about sort of limiting the pace of change toward that, but it wasn't about defining a, a different or alternative positive vision for, for our national identity, for who we are. Uh, what I think why, we why need, what I think. Like why, why is there lack of positive identity of like vision, you know, Sorry, it's sorry a good question. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I don't I don't know the answer. I, I think to some extent the the conservatives I, I think that conservatism as a defining identity on the right itself is uh is focused on preserving the good things of the past rather than vying for a different vision of the future. I like to say America was founded with a distinct vision of the future. Uh you think of the late eighteenth century and you had the American Revolution, you had the French Revolution. And those are two both forward-thinking, forward-leaning visions of the future. Some would say they're sort of closer than I think uh, we like to imagine. I, I don't know that I buy that. I think in many ways, the American, you read the American founders, and they had a deep grounding in understanding of human nature. They had a, a vision that was both very forward-thinking and aspirational, but deeply grounded in a correct understanding of human nature. Whereas you think of the French Revolution, it was a revolutionary rejection of human nature and uh, embrace of the perfectibility of man uh, in a way that has historically always led to totalitarianism. So for, for much of America's history, I think America was not defined by any sort of conservatism. The conservatism presumably would have been sticking with England and sort yeah. of sticking with the, the, uh, the, the good things of the past, uh, a classic sort of truest conservatism. So in many ways, I think it, it wasn't until it wasn't again until largely post World War II uh, that that became the defining uh, aspect of the right is this conservatism. In many ways, conservatism was imported largely, I think, from England uh, as a way of looking at the world. So why that triumphed, I uh, I don't know that I. I guess I don't know all the intricacies of why that triumphed, but I think it was it, it was a way that really made our movement at peace with the general sort of progressive liberal direction of the country. We no longer vied for a fundamentally different vision for the country, which which really is a, a it's a conflict of visions. It's a sharp conflict and settled into something that was much more of a uh, let's preserve the good things of the past, uh, which actually can fit very well with a progressive, a particular progressive vision. We, we buy over the pace of change, but we don't buy over the direction. I think that's, we're at a point where people increasingly recognize that's not a viable option, that we have, we have irreconcilable visions at this point. We're not content to just slow it down. The right has, the right has recognized that's a losing strategy. Uh, and yet I think we don't have decades of development of an alternative vision. Our movement has, our movement has not uh, really fleshed out what an alternative should look like, and you see a lot of, I think, vibrant conversations happening in that play in that space, but they're uh, they're not well developed. It's not easy to just import from somewhere else. America has a very diff distinct heritage, a very distinct culture. Uh, in many ways, a culture that itself is uh, is aligned with sort of technological change and, and commercial advance and all of that. And so what does a what does a non-left version of that look like? Uh, I, I think it's fun. I think actually 
why am I in venture? I'm in venture partially because venture is actually a really great platform for answering a lot of those questions. Uh, a lot of what goes into it at the very essence is is envision things in the future that we want to see and, and build them and make them happen. Marshall mobilized resources behind them. And so it's an exciting and vibrant conversation, uh, but it's also one that's still in the early stages. Yeah, I think... Um... I think that's an important distinction to make and to continually talk about, in my opinion, you know, like you said, there's, there's a lot of vibrant conversation happening around what is the, what is the, the positive vision for the future and kind of how did we get here? Because I think that's an, such an important thing. There seems to be so much noise around what we're not, or trying to demonize, demonize founders, you know, like of the, our founding fathers, you know, or Christopher Columbus or all these things were like ripping down these statues. And it's like, you're starting to erode the, um, any of the voices that were were the ones that were talking about that you know positive future and outlook, and so the, and the, there's so much noise on that side of you know me, media or, or what have you, and to me that that's that, that's a, such a key lacking piece, and that's something I'm so curious about. Right? Why is there not more discussions around that? One of the things that I had a guy on the podcast was talking about um, the view as it relates to like a family. There's this seemingly, seemingly a shift the last like several decades or even just say the last you know 30 years where the view of a family, instead of it being viewed as a team and you're talking about kind of a multi-generational team that you want to build in a legacy, it's more about a nest that you want to kick kids out of and you just want to kind of get that to that stage and, and how that the fundamental shift on thinking and how you think about your family is is kind of a related to what we're talking about here because it impacts everything that you do and how you kind of approach it. And for me, that was really powerful to, to hear and to internalize and say, okay, how am I saying this to my kids all the time and casting this vision for, Hey, this family is a team and we're going to have, we're going to have a positive impact. We're going to, we're going to do things. And and we're thinking multi-generationally as opposed to just, we're, you know, got to get you guys graduated out of the house and you got to go do your own thing, you know, does that resonate with you? No, it does. And I think it, in many ways, I think the second half of the, the last century in particular was a very consumeristic, uh, it, it aligns with a very consumeristic vision of life, right? Your, your, your goal is to, to the extent you have a family, it, it's sort of a, it's, it's a cost on that, or it's something that you, you do to a certain level based on, you have a couple of kids because that fits sort of a, desired vision of life or whatever, but then you quickly sort of move beyond that and get to get to ultimately retirement is ultimately sort of th this pure consumption vision and that that vision of life. And I think it's it, it fits with a nation that is that doesn't care much about it, it fits with a culture that cares little for legacy. And I think has very little respect for heritage. And those two go together, right? If you have very little respect for for fathers, you also uh, it, it, it's a very present, present focused, consumption focused uh, culture, and uh, that that is in many ways the pathology of uh, of uh, the era we're coming out of. Certainly, on both in many ways, on both the right and the left. Actually, I mean the right, the right certainly paid lip service to far more than that, but in many ways 
a lot of it got, a lot of its policy got reduced to, uh, in some ways you could think of sort of the common denominator that the left can largely be happy with, which is increasing GDP and increasing income and facilitating consumption and all of that, which, uh, which isn't a meaningfully different distinction, meaningfully different vision. Yeah. Yeah. So what, as, as you kind of think about, um, the positives of the, of the current state of the movement, my natural question, I think a lot of people are asking is like, why, why has the right like ceded power, you know, to, to the left in this progressivism. And then, so, I mean, I think we could talk a lot about that, but I'm, I'm curious, like what, what do you see happening that are the quote white pills that maybe normal everyday people aren't seeing? So if you're just, if everyday yeah. people are seeing, you know, all of the chaos that's going on, all of the division and seeing like, where is this country headed? And what, what are you seeing, you know, having your ear to the, to the ground a little bit more on, on the venture side? I know you're pretty plugged in politically. Um, can you speak to that a little bit of some of the white pills that are out there that are happening and where are they happening? So the biggest one for me is actually moving on from the, I think, from a legacy view that was, that increasingly we recognize uh, led to failure. And ultimately, I, I see a lot of, so the biggest one is I see a lot of fragility in the left. I think the left is increasingly, uh, they have lots of contradictions in their own coalition. They are uh they are they're rightly paranoid that their uh, regime is a lot more fragile than I think many people assume. Uh, it's something that is uh, it, it, it's built on a bunch of assumptions that are increasingly untenable. And merely having a right that is sort of renewing uh, renewing discussion of positive alternatives uh, is there's there's a good chance that that leads to. To something that matters. It's not something that it, it's not like we see the immediate path yet, but we see energy around that. It's no longer constrained by things that have held it back from meaningfully challenging the left. Uh, you see the left's coalition, and I think just in this last week, uh, uh, the, the the week after the uh, Hamas attack on Israel, I think you actually see a lot of fissures in the left's coalition, demonstrating the weakness of their coalition. Uh, what is a viable alternative we provide? I don't know that we have have a well-developed one yet, but you have people talking about the right things, asking the right questions, and that that's exciting. Uh, another, I think, white pill is, and this is, uh, this is sort of what interests me in the venture space, is I think technology can actually be our friend. Uh, technology is certainly something that the right has not, uh, is traditionally associated with a lot. A lot of people are very suspicious of it. A lot of parents are very suspicious of it. Uh, in general, it's something that I think uh, conservatives are inherently suspicious of. If your goal is to preserve the good things of the past, technology, in some sense, technological disruption invariably uh, leads to the loss of, of some of those norms. Uh, but if we have a positive vision, then disruptive technology can be one of the most powerful forces to get us there. Uh, if you have a fragile incumbent and you have disruptive technology, uh, and you are using that technology as a lever to achieve something desirable and positive. You're not you're not chasing the technology for the technology's sake, but you recognize it as a powerful lever. Uh, that is one of the things that can fairly rapidly reshuffle the deck. In a sense, it can fairly rapidly uh, change a status quo that right now seems to be so thoroughly in the hands of of uh, the opposition. 
and uh, of our opposition. And so I think that that creates exciting possibilities. You see some of that excitement in the in the crypto and the Bitcoin world, uh, regardless of whether some of the proposed solutions there are necessarily going to be the ones that drive this change. I think you see you see a space where people recognize the power of technology to change things and and recognize that they talk about the sort of regime level questions. And that is uh, that's a world of, of possibilities and excitement. And if things are very grim, uh, the grimmest would be a sort of steady path on the status quo with a steady consolidation of power by the left. But uh, I, I don't see that. And I think they also recognize that that's uh, that's not a likely trajectory. Yeah. Which terrifies them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a good, you know, I think you're absolutely spot on with technology being kind of feared by the right or conservatives because it's a change. So it's 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 antithetical to kind of what they stand for. If you're saying you're you're going to conserve the current state and not, you know, pursue this, you know, change. But much like a much like a you know, a, a, a power saw in the hands of the right person can do a lot of good, you know, the, in the, the hands of the wrong person can do a lot of bad, you know, you can build, you can build a house really fast, um, with, with technology. So I think that's, that's important. Um, you, you, you mentioned the, looking at the American revolution and the French revolution. Um, some of the other things I hear talked about a lot is like the Bolsheviks and, and, and that sort of like history. So if we're looking at, I hate to dwell on, you know, what we're not, but at the same time, there's, there's a lot that needs to be educated on of like kind of what we're dealing with in terms of like our period in history. And I'm curious, can you, if you could speak to kind of that discussion around how right now relates to the Bolsheviks or, or even just some educational things like examples to look at, um, resources, that sort of thing, um, to help kind of set a proper, appropriate framework for kind of what's going on in state of change in the country? Yes. Well, I think that's, that's instructive about in many ways, it's instructive about who the left are and what they do. Uh, and you look at, uh, I think the Bolsheviks, I think the cultural revolution in China is another one, but there's this steady, you certainly saw this in 2020, summer of 2020, but you really see this as, as I think a repeated pattern of the left is they, they are revolutionaries. They are tearing down. They often are supported by a wide range of people who are going to ultimately be destroyed by them. Uh, there's actually, you think of resources, there's an article that I, I found really interesting on, uh, it's in First Things, and it's an article about the uh, lead up to the Russian Revolution and how widely uh, intellectuals, uh, professionals, even, even business elites were widely supporting the Bolsheviks. And uh, it, it was a very trendy thing to do a lot like BLM. Uh, ultimately, people who were totally destroyed by that movement. And uh, so I think it's it's instructive to look at history and realize how uh, broadly people can support self-destructive things. Uh, it's also uh, it's also instructive to realize uh, what these movements uh, lead to and how they're not they're not, there's no necessary pendulum that'll just swing back. I think a lot of people assume a pendulum will swing back. Uh, it, it can be incredibly destructive, the course that, uh, the course that uh, these things uh, lead to if left unchecked. And it's, it's a sobering warning sign. It's something that I think broadly has woken people up over the last few years, people who 
who saw uh, they saw a trajectory they may not have liked, but they uh, they really stayed deeply sort of governed by a very constitutional view of the world. Ultimately, our job is to preserve the Constitution. Our job is to operate as sort of the principled principled alternatives. And uh, I think increasingly recognizing that our opponents are not our opponents are not are not governed by any sort of constraints like this. And and their goals are are revolutionary. And, and there's a very clear pattern uh, that you see today that uh, matches what what you saw 100 years ago. Uh, and that that I think that that wakes people up to to enter this fight, which, again, fighting is not a natural stance of conservatives. Conservatives largely want to be left alone. Uh, I think I think people on the left, uh, they get fulfillment from fighting in the political space. Uh, and that I think has that has woken people up. Yeah, You said they get fulfillment from that's another thing that's, I'm curious about, like the lack of the fight in the right and but yet the abundance of fight in the left and, and that dynamic is interesting because there seems to be a lot of identity on, on the fight of kind of what you're against on the left or what, you know, oppression you're, you're trying to come down on and is, you know, why, why, you know, we kind of talked about it a little bit, just the dynamic of why the fight is not there on the right. <laughs> it's just, I can't get over it. <laughs> it's like frustrating. Yeah. I, so I think it's several things. I would say one is as a movement defined by conservatives, I think conservatism, I think conservatives by the, by nature really are not, they're not drawn to the political in the same way. So for the left politics in many ways, it is their church as well. It's more than just, it's more than that is their sense of fulfillment. They're ultimately their eschatology is shaped by a sort of progressive arc of history and by fighting for progressive politics, they are in many ways sort of ushering in this uh, perfected world, uh, which is which provides a deep sense of meaning. And in many cases, if you have a revolutionary progressive viewpoint, then progressive revolution itself. I think I would say 50 years ago, that was an optimistic vision by the left that we would we would usher in this world that is shaped by these values. Increasingly, I think that that's proved unfulfilling. They've been disillusioned by that. Uh, so now, in many ways, that's been replaced by something where there's sort of a there's a fulfillment that comes from continual revolution, uh, even without a view that you're actually leading to something necessarily better. You're tearing down and attacking what it, what is seen as injustice without uh, without necessarily uh, having a compelling positive vision of what you're aiming for, which is both. I think it's both increasingly dangerous. They're they're no longer focused on building things, uh, but it's also. Uh, it's also actually much less inspiring. I mean, that vision is that vision fails to inspire, which I think creates opportunity for us. Uh, I think people limited to conserving good things, they don't want to. They don't want to fight in politics. They don't want to put their energy in. They want to. They want to put their time into enjoying the good things they're conserving. Uh, a movement that has more than that, a movement that has a positive vision. You think of entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are driven to go build something in the future. If part of what you build, if part of what you build is a is a technological tool uh, or an organization, a vision of organization that is shaped by that vision, you have you you have that entrepreneurial type, which is sort of a, a deeply American uh, uh, type that will throw themselves into realizing that I think with a, uh, 
with a vigor that is and an intensity that is uh, every bit as powerful as anything that the left uh, pushes on the revolutionary side. So uh, I think part of it is the framing of our movement has been why people are unmotivated. Uh, it, it's not a very, it, it itself is sort of anti, I, I guess another way to put it is the right has been in some ways anti-political. It, it's embraced a set of principles that are almost anti-political. They're opposed to the process itself. It's, it's, it's governed by a set of principles without a real appreciation for the process of taking over institutions, influencing institutions, uh, thinking about, about fights in political terms. Are these people friends or enemies? Are they, are they people we should be rewarding, et cetera? Uh, so you have a kind of a couple of, uh, of self-defeating, uh, ideologies almost held by by people on the right and you have the absence of a positive vision that actually inspires uh inspires an alternative now you have the right throwing off those uh constraints and embracing a positive vision and drawing entrepreneurs who feel passionately drawn to building uh building this future they want to live in which i think is deep innately in man's uh it's in man's nature you think of genesis one and we're called to fill the earth and subdue it take dominion and that that entrepreneurial urge to create you're channeling what god did in genesis one i mean you're it's one of the most fundamentally human things is to create something out of nothing uh to create something that helps fill the earth and subdue it and take dominion uh again very fundamental to our nature and i think draws and inspires people in a way that uh we're only beginning to see the power of yeah absolutely i think um i think you're spot on there you know to to, to wrap it, kind of go even higher, you know, wrap it in the, the, the greater story and, and the, the story of creation is like, God is a, God is a God of creation. Satan is, is, is of destruction. You know, and he wants to do everything to, um, eliminate reproduction, whether it's physical reproduction, reproduction of believers, all of that stuff. So it's, it's definitely an evil, I think that is at work, you know, because it's an anti-creative, anti-creation, um, you know, end game and that's infiltrating yes. all of that that's why we that that's why we've embraced the word vitality as a part of this american vitality i think vitality a, a, a vitality is uh ultimately a product of human human channeling the higher the higher aspects of our nature our, our creation the image of god god created we create and that creation can be everything from entrepreneurial creation uh cultural and civilizational creation, uh, uh, procreation, uh, creating families to, uh, to sort of national, uh, national expansion. All of those, I think are reflections of the same, uh, vital instinct, the same, uh, the same giving of our life and channeling of our life into something that creates more. Uh, and I think that's, that is in many ways the opposite of the left. The left has embraced a revolutionary destruction, an anti-human ideology that is uh, is helping draw a very, very clear contrast here. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm a little bit biased, but I think, you know, having a family is, is, is the, the best microcosm distillation of that because you are, you're thinking long-term, you are creating a, an environment for your, for your kids, your, you're talking about a creative endeavor, you know, not only to have the children, but then to, to build them and mold them into the people that they should be. And I think that is, 
that's foundational to, I think, a healthy society, right? To have people that are that are doing that on a micro level, that then it's basically a group of, of those small microcosms that are coming together and saying, hey, we're, we are united behind a positive vision of the future as a collective of families that are in this nation, you know? Yeah, the intergenerational aspect, and, and this is where I think Burke makes a, uh, a great point, which is that ultimately it's a, uh, you have this compact between the, uh, the dead, the living, and the not yet, uh, not yet born. And ultimately we, we recognize uh, that intergenerational nature of civilization. We recognize uh, good things of heritage, uh, both, both, both sort of objective and prudential goods and, and the fifth commandment, the honoring, uh, honoring your father and your mother. And uh, the, uh, and the, uh, I think the, the future that we are providing, the legacy that we're leaving uh, and the value of the, the value and importance of that heritage, uh, which, which involves passing on both literally uh, the, the raising of our kids, the, the building of a family, uh, but also the, uh, the material things that we're passing on to them and in, leaving an inheritance. That's a good thing to leave an inheritance. It's curious that in the last, uh, I think, few decades, you've seen that the trendiness of not passing on inheritances to kids. It's very, I would say it's an anomaly in human history to think that it's actually a good thing to sort of leave your kids on your own, on their own. And, and it's better for you to give your money to, to charity or whatever. Uh, that's one. I think it's good to leave a, it's good to leave an inheritance. And uh, the Bible references that too. Mm-hmm. And uh and likewise, a cultural inheritance and a, a, a institutional inheritance. We we build a nation that is uh, culturally rich that gives them uh, a heritage to enjoy uh, in many other ways. And institutionally, we give them stable institutions. We we fight the we fight the wars that need to be fought and the battles that need to be fought uh, so that they don't need to. That would be I I, I think. Forget where I saw this, but someone referenced it only. Uh, how much of a coward do you have to be to uh, put off a war? You, you know that there's an enemy that needs to be confronted. Uh, you know that there's a war that's going to be fought, and you willingly choose to put it off until your uh, children's day rather than fighting it today. That would that's just that's that's a horrible thought that we're going to force them to to fight that. And uh, by by taking those things on. Uh, we are uh, we are leaving them an inheritance of uh, of peace and stability, or we're we're hoping to do so. Yeah, that's very important. Nate, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate your time today um, and the insight you brought. That's and I love what you're doing and and want to support you know any way that we can to to new founding. So, well, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. All right. Well, take take care. Take care. So we'll call.